What's up, guys? You're listening to The Quest, a podcast that inspires founders and creators to seek eternal growth. I'm Justin Kahn, co-founder of Twitch and partner at Goat Capital. Every week, I sit down with icons and trailblazers from tech, Hollywood, sports, music, and more to uncover their human stories and bring you lessons in finding meaning and happiness beyond success. It's often easy to talk about winning, but I'm here to share the difficult stories that are often left out of the spotlight. I ask the questions nobody else asks, and you'll get the answers you won't hear anywhere else. You've heard me talk about it before, but if you're an entrepreneur or creative that needs to get more things done, then you're gonna love Magic Mind. I love Magic Mind because it tastes great, gives you consistent energy throughout the day, helps you relax through adaptogens, nootropics that keep you focused, and just generally makes me feel great. If you wanna try it out, you can check it out with the code Justin20 at magicmind.co. All right, what's up, guys? Today, we're pulling one from the archives. This is a very special episode of The Quest, and I'm super excited to bring you my conversation with the one and only Balaji Srinivasan. Now, if you've been hanging out on tech Twitter long enough or listen to any other tech podcast, then you're probably familiar with Balaji. He's an angel investor, formerly CTO of Coinbase, and previously a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. He's one of the most incredible minds in the world. And I learned a lot from him in this episode. We discussed topics ranging from decentralization, crypto, media technology, social networking, China, machine learning, digital privacy, and much, much more. Here's Balaji. Hope you enjoy. I'm so excited, Balaji. So I just want to dive right in and start talking about your article, How to Build a City. Because sure, this has been a, an interest area of mine for a long time. And I think you spent a lot of time thinking about it. you're one of the smartest people I know. So let's just start there. The tweet was specific to Miami, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's essentially overlapping body of work. But about a year ago, I tweeted, how to start a new city. Number one, build a community in the cloud, organize economy around remote work, enforce laws with smart contracts, practice in-person norms of civility, simulate architecture and VR, eventually crowdfund territory, and materialize city into the real world. And the key is to go cloud first, land last, build a community first, don't worry about real estate. That can be solved once you have sufficient numbers of people with aligned values, negotiate a deal with a state to buy land in the middle of nowhere with specified laws, then move, okay? So yeah. this is that's part of something I've been writing about since I think at least 2013. So in 2013, I gave a talk uh, called Silicon Valley's Ultimate Exit and also a follow-up article in Wired called um, Software's Reorganizing the World. And essentially what they talked about was um, basically kind of a companion pair of articles. They talked about the fact that the physical location of Silicon Valley was going to become a bad place for technologists to do business for a variety of reasons. We were over-concentrated there. We had disrupted too many industries. There's going to be a backlash. Um, I could see that building even in, in 2013. And I think that is borne out, you know, all the antitrust stuff and stuff that has happened. Okay. Sort of like a seed investor. What, okay. what were the signs of 2013? Cause that, you know, like a number of things, crypto, coronavirus, you were right on that as well. So like what, I'm so curious, like what were the things that were the signals? In 2013, I did not see it coming. I think most of Silicon Valley did not see it coming. So what were everybody thought it was then? crazy, or not everybody. A lot of people <laughs> yeah. thought it was crazy, right? So it's basically um, what I saw for that particular thing was December 2012. Essentially, media coverage of tech was still 
essentially universally positive. There was a series of articles, for example, right after Obama got reelected, that was something like the nerds go marching in at the Atlantic and, and so on and so forth. And then there was a sharp shift right after the election. And, you know, my capsule summary of this is that you can start the conceptual clock at different times, right? But if yeah. my capsule summary is if you start, let's say, 1995, right? Yeah. From 95 to 2008, essentially, media ignored tech, especially from 01 to 08, because they were focused on Iraq and all this other stuff, right? Um, tech was not considered like a power center in the U.S. It was a place that made gadgets, you know, it made Google search and, you know, the Mac or whatever. And tech ignored media. Because after AOL in the early 2000s, uh, those failed because they had become media companies. And um, so it was, or, you know, failed, didn't go to zero, but they were not as successful as Google was. And so an entire generation of founders learned the implicit lesson. And you may remember this at that time because you were at YC, what, yeah. like 06, right? Entire generation of founders learned the implicit lesson that they wanted to build, you know, a Facebook, a Dropbox, a YouTube, yeah. a Twitter, where it was all user-generated content. Yeah, platforms. That's right. Like generating your own content. Investors didn't want to invest in it. Everybody thought that was a terrible business. It was all about building the platform that got other people to put the content on. Exactly. And so there was sort of a blissful mutual ignorance for a while. Then what happened from 08 to 2012 was the financial crisis happened. There's a great graph which shows print media disruption. If you go to Google Images and look at this, and roughly the the you know traditional print media industry's revenue crashed from like 60 something billion down to like 17 billion in like four years. And Google and Facebook just went whoosh vertical at that time. Also, the iPhone went vertical. And we kind of forget, by the way, how new this whole tech thing is. It's not like 30 years old. It's basically about 10 years old. You know, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's a very senior executive at Microsoft. And he said, until 2008, Google was basically the only company making money from their perspective on the internet. Like Amazon hadn't yet blown up to the same extent it has today. Facebook hadn't. It was still pretty young as a company. Um, the iPhone was just launching, right? Microsoft hadn't yeah. experienced its turnarounds. And Airbnb and Uber and all these other companies didn't exist yet, right? Yeah. So, so it's actually all this stuff is very new. The So what happened was basically from 08 to 2012, Tech suddenly took like something like $40 billion of revenue or something insane like this. Uh, and Google and Facebook went vertical just as print media went horizontal or, or even worse, like, you know, down, right? And so, you know, after getting through uh, another moment here, by the way, was Steve Jobs passing away. And after that, this series of articles, the iEconomy series of articles came out, okay, which was the, the very first series of articles in NYT that was like Foxconn. And, you know, people jumping off bridges and so on and so forth. Like the first, like anti-tech stories started to appear around that time. But if you remember Occupy Wall Street, uh, I think 2011, everybody held up their phones as a tribute to Steve Jobs after he passed away. Remember that? Yeah. And I remember remarking to a friend at the time, I'm like, that's really interesting. These folks are ostensibly anti-billionaire, you know, billionaire, but they're pro-tech billionaire. That's like a, a tectonic plate that may shift where... yeah. You know what I'm saying, right? There's it's there's an unstable an equilibrium. It's an unstable equilibrium. That's right. It was it was something which I could see being resolved in a number of different ways with them going pro tech or anti billionaire. But it was it was something that seemed a little too incongruous, right? Sometimes you know many many regimes, many eras maintain that degree of incongruity for a long time. You know, it felt like an unstable equilibrium. And with, with Steve's passing, the tech sector sort of lost its diplomat. You know, the person yeah. who was sort of the most broad minded, certainly the person who cared the most about media coverage. You know, he went and he wined and dined all of these 
gadget reviewers to make sure that they had good reviews. You know, he talked about this in his biography, like how, how you know, it was interesting. This person is running this multi-billion dollar operation is concerned with five paragraphs in a column by a gadget reviewer, say, because most people aren't going to just go and buy his gadget. They're going to go read the review before they buy his gadget, right? So he's very, very concerned about this type of stuff, very concerned about the coverage. And then with him passing away, nobody else really cared in quite the same way or had the same charisma or had the same network of connections. So we sort of lost the diplomat, right? And that plus the tectonic plate pressure of this sort of Occupy movement, plus the fact that media was being disrupted, led to in 2013, the first spate of negative articles on tech people, right? Attacking tech people as, quote, being, you know, rich tech bros and so on. So from 2013 to 2019, what happened in 2013 was you could see these articles coming and folks who had previously been unambiguously positive were suddenly jeering. It was a very sharp 180. And it was among some of the cultural influencers. And so that's basically, I know it's a long answer, but that that's why I was like, okay, this is going to turn south for us because this is a brush fire that I see no resistance to and it'll become a forest fire and it's going to burn what we've got down and we need to figure out how to get out. And so when you came to that realization, how did that translate to Silicon Valley and like the, the actual physical territory that is, you know, San Francisco and the SF Bay Area? that is going to turn hostile and, you know, how there might develop a new home for the type of innovation that exists in that Silicon Valley. Right. So the second thing was that the East Coast might not have turned on technology had there been greater ties. That is to say, if for every spouse whose company went to zero or had layoffs, they had a spouse who had stock options from Google, there might have been some intra-household balancing. And they might have been like, okay, you know, this tech thing isn't so bad after all. Uh, you know, God closed the door, he opens a window kind of stuff, right? But uh, but that's not what happened for a few reasons. First is the technology capital, you know, Silicon Valley is 3,000 miles away. So geographically, remote wasn't as advanced as it is in 2021, you know, 15, 20 years ago. There were some jobs you could do remote, but it wasn't quite as quite as much, right? So that's that was the first the second is that the kind of person who works in the traditional industries, especially media, but also politics or, you know, Hollywood or, or, you know, that kind of stuff. Psychologically, they're different in terms of disposition than the logical, mathematical, scientific folks who come into tech, right? But third, perhaps most important is, depending on you count it, tech is 70% or more immigrant. And so it is just a demographically different and separate population from the, the sort of old line families that populate the East Coast. Okay. And so just like this new group of people just coming in through SFO from New Delhi and Shanghai and Poland and, and, and South America and so on and so forth, swoosh like this, right? And literally new money, but also new people. Okay. That wasn't being split enough with the old money. And so the old money just didn't like it, you know? And when you've got something like that, like what, what what happened in tech, what is happening now is you're actually having like the formation of a people, right? A reverse diaspora where a lot of people who are interested in something are coming from all over the world. You know, the vehicles like Hacker News and so on helped with this, but basically you or Steve Huffman or all those folks were sort of attracted to the Y signal, you know, the bad signal, right? You're yeah. psychologically similar and then kind of concentrated in one place, right? And that's kind of a new thing that the internet allows, but it's not 
completely new because in the past there have been pilgrims and so on have come to areas for religious reasons or other kinds of reasons, right? There were communes in the 1800s in America. And so essentially from, from history, I could see, okay, well, first we've got like kind of the formation of a people with our own kind of culture and ways of ascending. You know, it's very different than the East Coast culture of pay your dues and join a big company and work your way up and your assistant to the regional manager and so on and so forth, right? It's very different than the glad handing and the politicking and the, the verbal hijinks and so on over there, where essentially the whole name of the game is to gain a piece of the state. Okay, to become the undersecretary for so and so, right? To get a grant for X, to actuate the state with an article so that you have impact on the world by leading to some new, you know, FDA action, right? Whether bureaucrat or academic or or journalist, that's what people want. They want a piece of the state, right? A piece of the state to call yeah. their own, right? And then our culture is very different. We want a piece of the network, right? A homestead, you know, Reddit.com or you know, Justin TV. So you take this totally bare homestead, right? This this digital homestead, this piece of the network, and you build that up into something, right? Which is actually much less of an ask in some ways and much more of an ask in others. It's much less of an ask because you're not asking for much. It's much more of an ask because you're asking for no one to have control over you, okay? So essentially, these sort of two cultures I could see were, were poised for a clash and that the main tool that we had was the stuff we've we've had for, you know, that, that built the culture, which was the ability to migrate, the ability to build remote tools, you know, the sort of resourcefulness to see trends in advance. And also actually a lot of tech people now marry each other and, and so on and so forth. That's actually a much more common thing. So I could see this technology cloud swirling together and becoming something that was distinct ideologically and demographically from the East Coast cloud. Now, I know this sounds like what I'm describing is more obvious in 2021, right? A lot of those trends are more right. obvious. Trend. That was they less obvious, obvious in 2013. Yeah, that's right. So it really was sort of like a seed investor where I could enumerate the case. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I had 50 articles or 50 different things, data points that I could collimate like this. And I couldn't say it was for sure, but it looked like the way to bet, especially because we didn't have a jobs like diplomat who can negotiate, you know, especially because nobody thought it was like a real issue because they thought it was just some articles online. That's why I was, I knew that this was going to become a thing because nobody was involved in stopping it from happening, you know? So now what's the, what's the solution, right? Basically what, what I think is going to happen is, is what's already happening, namely that the, the East coast has developed an ideology with which they've captured full control of the state and uh, they're going to be using it to go after tech you know, with antitrust and, you know, all this other stuff, like a gigantic male fist descending from the sky. And there's a huge difference in terms of today versus the Microsoft trial. Today, there's an animus towards an industry, all right? There's an animus towards a sector. And so it is regulation as a function of animus. And so it's not going to be narrowly tailored. It's not going to be well thought out. It's simply going to be, okay, they're bad. Therefore, let's attack them, right? And... um that may result in a few different things. I think the most likely, unfortunately, is it turns, uh, let's say, let me call, let me give two different outcomes, right? One outcome, which is the worst outcome, but I think the modal outcome is that, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon and so on become true wards of the state, right? Like true NSA surveillance machines, right? Seven, eight years ago, if you remember, the founders of these companies went to Obama and they protested the NSA use of their services. Remember, they all packed into a conference yeah. room, right? 
And they said, this is bad. And they made actually a lot of good arguments. Hey, this hurts our business overseas. This hurts our reputations for neutrality. And now, seven, eight years later, that's all being forgotten. Um, yes, there were some overseas requirements. You had to have data centers, you know, separate and so on. But these giants have sort of cruised to dominance. And, uh, and the NSA hasn't been reformed and Snowden hasn't been pardoned. And so the dark scenario that I think is actually the most likely scenario is Google just becomes evil. It as part of this antitrust, they they put in various surveillance provisions and backdoors and what have you, such that it's just hoovering up everything, which is why we probably all want to decloud and de-Google like now, you know, to give some possibility of some shade from this sort of unprecedented surveillance machine. I mean, the Stasi never had anything like this, you know, and, and they were able to do quite a lot of damage. So that is the that is the bad scenario where you have this sort of solar eclipse, you know, the blotting out of the sun where something that was good gets turned completely to evil. And it's very similar to like Game of Thrones or whatever, where you had the good dragon, you know, whatever is flapping yeah. and then gets killed and then its eyes get reanimated bright blue. And now it's the evil dragon, right? That's basically exactly how I think about kind of the wokeification, the, the capture of Google especially, but then more generally the, you know, Silicon Valley tech companies. So, you know, if I was right about the previous thing, like essentially I think that we're on track, unfortunately, for great evil with the abuse of these things, you know, in a, in a completely unapologetic and cartoonishly abrupt and in-your-face way. Like, you know, the deplatforming, the surveillance, there won't even be a pretense of it, you know? Um, they'll just be command line searches for thought criminals, that kind of thing. Which is, and, I mean, there's a lot of, okay. like, tech companies themselves, at least, the you know, the fan companies, the kind of, like, head-of-the-tail companies. Ten years ago, there was this real dedication to liberalism, right? Like, yeah. the platforms. They were, you know, free speech was, like, really important, not making decisions on what kind of speech would happen on the platform except in really egregious cases you know and uh now it's gone completely sideways where the platforms themselves are making decisions on like what's acceptable speech there's you know kind of rampant censorship and we're moving more towards like the you know what's the window of acceptable ideas and anything outside of that window is like arbitrarily bannable on these platforms but there's the, the kind of that part of it. And then, like you said, the surveillance culture has gotten to, you know, it's kind of standard to like know everything about every user and then monetize that however you can think of. That's right. So I wonder, is the antidote to that? I know you're a huge proponent of decentralization. Is it Web3, kind of the rebuilding of all the centralized applications in a way that liberal values are intrinsically enforced in the platform? Actually, yes and yes. All right. So, Here's the alternative scenario. And the future is still plastic, I think, you know? I think without crypto, without Web3, I would be, without Bitcoin, I'd be extremely bearish on the future and probably not even, you know, speaking on anything. I'd be just hunkering down, you know, like it, it would essentially be a global competition between two surveillance states, the American surveillance state and the Chinese surveillance state. It really would be, and everybody else would sort of cower as these eyes of Sauron just passed above, okay? You know, with AI and drones and animating everything and, and, and watching everybody. Really, like, dark future. But with crypto, we have a third possibility, neither woke capital nor communist capital, but crypto capital. A third capital base, a third way of aligning all the rest of the people of the world who outnumber both the Americans and the Chinese 
which is not to say like I have, I have a beef with most Americans or most Chinese, really it's the Chinese states and the American state that I think are headed in a bad direction. So the rest of the people of the world, including actually millions of Americans and Chinese within these regimes, can be aligned behind crypto, behind the original values of the West, like free speech and free markets, privacy, protection from search and seizure, international rule of law, a fair deal, non-discrimination due to pseudonymity, transparent contracts with impartial enforcement via blockchain, and so on and so forth, right? This is actually the true spirit of the West, as opposed to you know, the various substitutes and perversions, frankly, that that have occurred in different ways over, over different years. And so the thing about this, and this is very important, I don't think that tech people, crypto people should try to busy themselves as much with reforming the state. But I do think, I mean, that's okay. And I'll talk about how one can do that. But I do think they should lobby and join and evangelize their colleagues at large tech companies because those are still more subject to reform. And one senior executive who's pro-crypto can potentially raise their voice and be the minority report that stops a surveillance regime kind of thing from developing, if that makes any sense, right? Crypto is that outside force this decade that could be what wokeness was in the last decade. Where, you know, what, what happened with wokeness was there was this outside force that appealed to sort of latent software that had been installed in people's heads, right? You have all these, just to back up for a second, you have all these people who worked at Google and Facebook and other, other places that were graduates of Harvard and Stanford, you know? And in addition to their computer science degrees, they got these sort of humanities education that had a specific set of premises, which I think are mainly incorrect, but that were sort of lying latent. And they're like like hooks, right? And then once you have this sort of broadcast of wokeness, it would appeal to those latent hooks and it would make moral arguments that people in their most impressionable years, in their teens and early 20s, just absorbed uncritically. And most people don't just absorb this uncritically, they never challenge them, right? You don't really get a new moral education when you're just debunking device drivers. You know, you've got what was given to you at college when you're in four years in a residential education, you know, setting, Right. And uh, so, so like the Manchurian candidate, you know, their eyes suddenly turned blue, right? Because they got these signals which said, your company is bad because of X, Y, and Z moral premises that were installed at seminary school, namely, you know, college. And the humanities part of their education sort of turned them into, the, they, they got pwned, right? It was, it was essentially like, uh, you know, sort Windows Boxes. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It, it, it was malware that was installed as they were rolling off the, assembly line back in college, right? And, you know, all of this, all of these arguments are things where if you track it back as to why are you saying this woke argument has any validity, they're going to track it back to some reading that they did in college, usually, right? Some interaction they had in college. Now, there's some who have been radicalized purely by social networks, and that is a more frequent thing today. And that's actually where, you know, in a sense, we have a chance because colleges are sort of dropping off in some ways, right? Because it's more hiring from the internet, there's a different ideology that is actually also able to compete with wokeness on its own terms in many ways and offer a completely, in some ways on its own terms, in some ways a totally Z-axis, and that is the crypto ideology. And that can actually contend. It's sort of the predator to the alien, you know, really capitalism versus communism in a sense, but of this this century. I can go into detail on that. Should I talk about that? Well, in a second, but I want to talk sure. about the tech company reform because I'm wondering, like, 
you said it, it's maybe it's possible for tech companies to reform. There has been interest, like there was a certain like, you know, we're both friends with Steve from Reddit. They're working on crypto projects, you know, then, then you have Jack from Twitter, I think has said mm-hmm. that he was interested in, in, you know, like a crypto version of Twitter. Do you think it's possible for these companies to decentralize themselves and like give away power in order to, I guess, permanently declare a distributed, decentralized liberal values system? Yes. And in fact, actually, you don't well, find your market. technically possible, but like, can, do you think it's possible, like politically inside these companies? Yes. That's the challenge. And, and, yeah. and let me explain why. So thank God. I mean, like basically, you know, Teal saw something even earlier, frankly, than I did. Where in 2009, you know, this actually strikes me as very prescient. He said um, something like, the future is a race between politics and technology. It may be very close. The fate of the world may depend upon the efforts of one man who makes the world safe for capitalism, right? That turned out to be Satoshi Nakamoto. Like, I, I think we're going to see in the fullness of time, we're already seeing it, but with Satoshi, we have a much different future than without. It's actually crazy how big a deal it is. And here's why. The crypto version of any product is probably going to be about 10x more valuable than the centralized version. Yeah, I think we've just started this internet thing. And uh, what I mean by that is I don't think Bitcoin is close to where it's going to get to. And it's already uh, more valuable than PayPal, right? Why, Go ahead. I, yes. And why is that? Because I mean, well, so you, you've seen that play out in the markets where you have these crypto projects that have 10% of the users or 1% of the user usage of the centralized version, but all have yeah. this enormous Why is that? Gap. Yeah. Well, yeah. so I think it's for the same reason that the internet companies were about 10x more valuable or more than the desktop equivalents. Okay. Because once you went online, so you go on disk, online, on chain, right? So once you go put Word online, what do you get? You get collaboration, you get instant updating, you know, the thing just always works because you're just loading in a browser versus having incompatible device drivers or whatever. You get, you know, machine learning nowadays with auto-suggest. If you remember when you started building web apps in 2005, Hater News at that time, Hacker News, which which has always been Hater News, but Hater News has been Hater News for a long time. And there's a strain of argument that you might remember that said, why are you building a web app? It's just like a shitty desktop app. Yeah. So, so let me let me explain it from a different angle than the normal angle, which starts with the Federal Reserve and, and gold seizures and so on and so forth. Right? Let me explain it from a database administrator angle. So I've got actually a post on this called, Yes, You May Need a Blockchain. Okay, This is addressed to your AWS cloud, Google cloud, et cetera, kind of person, right? They'll often ask, well, why do you need these trustless systems? Why does everybody just use you know, a centralized database, et cetera, right? And just like before, when they were comparing a Windows desktop app to a web app based on like latency, right? Which certainly it was going to be worse on. It's still, it's always going to be worse. A web app is always going to be worse than a desktop app for that reason, if you've got packets going being sent back and forth. But they were comparing it on these other axes. So too, if the only thing you're comparing a centralized database versus a decentralized database on is transactions per second, you're missing the other axes. And one of the most important axes is the number of simultaneous root users. Okay. So what I mean by that is rather than talking about trust, trust at the government level or trust at the state level, think about A, whether you trust other corporations and second, whether corporations trust their users. Put it like this. You had, I mean, what you run at, at Justin TV, Postgres or something else? Yeah, Postgres. Okay. Do you put your Postgres root password on the internet? Yeah, of course not. Of course not. Okay. So 
basically what that would do would have given everybody read and write access to the database, right? They would have seen every table, every row, all the type of stuff, right? Instead, what you did is you mediated that through an API. When I ask a database administrator who's skeptical about crypto, why don't you put your root password on the internet? They say, basically some variant of, well, I, I don't trust everybody, you know, I, you know, like, and then I'm like, oh yeah, you don't trust everybody. Oh, that's interesting. That's actually the rationale for crypto because what blockchains are, are open state databases. Okay. There's a next step after open source. It's open state where every single row of data is public. So the world has read access and every user is a root user because with a certain amount of crypto, you have write access. You can write a field. It's gated solely on your position of crypto, nothing else. And you can even mine a block if you have sufficient compute, right? That's for Bitcoin. Of course, it's going to differ for others, okay? There are, of course, versions that are permissioned, but for the permissionless chains, there are a massive innovation in database design that allows us to go from one to N root users, okay? That is huge. So yeah, it's fewer transactions per second, but it's thousands more root users, millions more. Okay. And why is that important? Well, once you go open state, if the backend of Twitter was open state, you could just basically write new front ends to it, right? You could write data analysis scripts. You wouldn't need the Twitter API. Twitter couldn't deplatform you, which they did to a lot of people. And now we're actually seeing what that can look like with BitCloud, which is like an open source Twitter. Disclosure, I'm an investor in it. But I do think it's good. I'm investor, assuming I'm investor in pretty much everything that we talk about. If I, if we talk about something in crypto, the thing about something like BitCloud, the backend is it's open. You can enumerate the rows. Okay. That's why like 60 people are, have already built like informal APIs to the thing. Okay. And that is something which pulls in the developer and the investor early on. And then also the other power user, which is the influencer. And that's enough to bootstrap these new decentralized social networks, right? There's more because Everybody can capture more of the value they create. That's one of the fundamental things that makes this more valuable, okay? Basically, what crypto is, is digital property rights. Okay, just, just to explain this, um, are you familiar with how China actually reformed, how it uh, went from Maoism to capitalism? Everybody kind of knows no. that China became rich. But you don't know, okay. So this is one of the most important stories to know. And there's actually, uh, you know, there's a lot of denunciation of China and, you know, some of that is merited and whatnot. Certainly, you know, I can be critical of it uh, as well, but it's worth also understanding what they did right and how they leveled up. How did they go from this agrarian communist state where people were literally eating each other and to this basically the number two, maybe number one world power on some dimensions. So there's an article version, there's a book version. So article version, there's something called like a NPR, the secret document that transformed China from a 10-ish years ago. I forget the exact year, uh, NPR. And essentially, so the story goes, Deng Xiaoping had recently just taken power from Mao. And uh, around that time, a bunch of farmers in, I believe, Xiaogang province, and please excuse my pronunciation on this because I might be, I, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert on, on Chinese pronunciation, but a bunch of farmers in, in Xiaogang province basically got together and they signed a secret contract which said that, yes, they're on a collective farm, but each of them gets to keep some share of the grain that they're growing, right? They don't have to give it all to the collective, right? But this contract included provisions for them to provide for each other's next of kin if they were executed. Do you know why? Well, because that was an illegal contract, I assume. Because capitalism was punishable by death yeah. in China within human memory about 40-something years ago. Okay? That's like, you could be shot in the head for entrepreneurship. I mean, that's insane, okay? 
that's that that is like like to truly take on board i'm just saying that but to truly understand what communism was we haven't really seen the movies on what this really meant right this this insane system where the things we totally take for granted like the right to start your own business the right to change a job right the the right to buy and sell what you want like enormous areas of human freedom not just those economic areas but you know when you restrict all of those other areas you have to lie about everything Right. You have to you have to lie about how much grain was created. You have to lie that you didn't shoot the peasants who didn't create the grain. You have to you just fake all these statistics, the entire system, because they denied that that necessary evil and not even evil of profit. It just got all twisted into knots. Okay, so. So essentially, the secret document that transferred China is just like an article length version of this. I mean, you know, the doctrine under Mao was that you didn't even own the teeth in your head. Okay, they all belong to the collective. So. How the F did you go from that to this ridiculous capitalist economy, which certainly has many issues today, but it's not quite the same as being shot for starting a business, you know? And there's a good book by Ezra Vogel on China, which was basically about how Deng Xiaoping and the transformation of China, okay? There's some article-length versions on this. And this is actually worth reading for any tech or startup CEO, okay? Because the turnaround here was on a scale that's even greater than what Satya did at Microsoft. Uh, The turnaround here was absolutely phenomenal. The stakes could not be higher. You're talking about a billion people who, for a generation, had their brains filled with communist ideology, right? Wokeness, you know, may get to this level, unfortunately, actually. But Deng was actually purged three times. Uh, I mentioned this in their podcast, but actually that's a real term for cancel. You know, cancel is the sort of juvenile thing that comes from teenagers complaining about their TV shows being canceled because their actors said something bad, hence cancel culture, right? And it's just sort of, it's this juvenile way of talking about something very serious, which is purging. That was a term that they used in the Soviet Union and the People's Republic, right? Since someone's purged, they were often unpersoned. They're purged to greater or lesser degrees, but usually it was now de facto a crime to associate with them. Um, You know, to even be their family member, you could be suspect. And, you know, the penalty could be everything from what it is in the West, which is shunning them for, you know, any economic or interpersonal relationship. So future stuff is all cut off from them. They become a pariah to you know, being jailed and losing life and liberty and or property, right? And so Deng was actually purged three times. You know, he kind of came back and there was an editorial that said he's okay. And then he got purged again and his son was thrown through a window and was put in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So, I mean, things were crazy there. So how did Deng turn it around? Well, first he managed to outmaneuver Mao's widow when she passed away. That's how much he when he passed away, so-called Gang of Four. And there's a whole set of machinations that took place in the mid-70s on this. But second, he saw what was happening in places like Zhao Gang, and he basically called off the dogs. Once he took power, he said, don't kill them. Those farmers may have the right idea. See, Deng had been attacked for many years as being a secret capitalist rotor. It's someone who wants to take the capitalist road, a reactionary running dog of the West who thinks that capitalism has some merit to it. You know, yeah. that all capitalists aren't top hat, greedy people who are out to exploit China and should be executed. What's interesting, by the way, is if you take a lot of the rhetoric of that time and sort of map it to like the woke rhetoric in the US, you, you sort of see like the same level of just extremism in every single word or paragraph is there, right? The, the X and the Y and Z, it's, it, it's linearly related um, at like two languages that are related at the root, and even if the inflections are different. So, so what happened with Deng is he 
called off the dogs here. And fundamentally, he realized he couldn't flip the entire country from communist to capitalist overnight. That's a difference between sort of a, a market reform versus a communist reform. With a communist reform, all the flags change. There's a huge declaration, we communists now, you know, and there's a glorious new anthem and a glorious new this, glorious new that. Everything changes. It's often year zero, this disjunctive change, right? That's what kind of that, that communist revolution looks like. The left of center revolution often looks like that. The market revolution was continuous. He didn't change any symbols. In fact, he kept it as continuous as possible. He didn't make a grand announcement because that would have caused backlash. Instead, what he said was, okay, I'm going to take the political capital I have, and I've observed that Hong Kong is working, that Taiwan is working, unfortunately, because you know for them, Taiwan had basically grown to almost the GDP of mainland China at the time, simply by practicing capitalism. And Singapore is working. And so he had meetings with Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore. Um, and... Um, basically use his political capital to allow for a special economic zone across the causeway from Hong Kong. One zone literally fenced off, by the way, okay, where the Chinese people were allowed to be capitalist. Right? Yeah. And uh, of course, that was a, at first he had spent a lot of political capital on that. That was not easy because the equivalent, by the way, and this is the kind of thing that we want to do, the equivalent would be setting up an FDA-free zone in the U.S. Right. Okay. Just like, oh my God. An anathema yeah. to everybody. Yeah, why everyone. Yeah, yeah all these people would freak out. Out. you know. And and the thing about that is because they think the FDA, or now the FDA now with what it's done over the last year with blocking COVID tests, with going and blocking now the Johnson Johnson vaccine where they basically just like killed America's vaccination momentum. Have you seen that graph, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The vaccination it's, has gone it's 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 gone sideways completely. They, they they essentially just gave all this ammo to anti-vax people. They killed the momentum of the vaccination because they were so scared of side effects, you know. And um and the only thing that's novel about this is that it's being done in public at a very large scale with everybody aligned as a class versus the poor Alzheimer's patients or whatever just getting punched in the corner with no one to see them. Okay. So, so normally what happens is the FDA is doing this to all these people who don't have a collective voice. Now there's too many people who are affected by COVID for them to silence and intimidate everybody. Normally that's what they do. So, um, it's very bad, by the way. It's like, it's like, uh, the best analogy for the FDA would be like, you know, with the TSA, when you go through the aperture, like when you go and get on a plane and, you know, then you come back, like, for that duration where you go through the metal detectors and you're in the line and you get off, you don't make any jokes about the TSA. You don't say anything, okay? Because you might lose yeah. the cost of your flight. In the same way, when you start a biotech company, while you're actually regulated by the FDA, you don't say anything because government truncheons can come down, retaliatory wait times. They have a thousand ways to screw you for speaking up to retaliate against you. And that that is threatened in many ways, overt and not overt, through the uh through the process. So that's why you don't really hear biotech CEOs criticizing it. And then many of them have, have Stockholm syndrome where they're like, yeah, well, this is the right thing to do. And of course, there's like a, basically a one-line deconstruction of that, which is with all of this energy on, you know, RCTs, so-called randomized control trials, we've done them for everything other than one thing. You know what that is? What is it? The effects of regulation itself. <laughs> yes. That's, okay. Yes. That's interesting, right? wait a second, how do we even know that this entire process, we haven't RCT'd the process itself? What does iterative medicine look like, right? Well, what if we go yeah, back to, to RCT the process and like just let anything happen? Well, so you can actually flip that over. No, so yeah. They might say that, right? And so I think often with this, you can't just argue around the pole that, that has been set up. You need to actually start at the other goal line. 
right? You have to go to the other extreme and basically start at, you know, the alternate moral pole. The alternate moral pole is our bodies, our choice. So the concept of doing a free trade zone in China at that time was of comparable radicalness. Actually, the FDA thing is actually a good analogy because a generation of people had just gotten hit by communism. And so a lot of people were quietly sympathetic to Deng, even if publicly communism was a law of the land. A lot of people were sympathetic to Deng because, you know, they, they had just seen 30 years of communism. They're like, okay, you know, it's, maybe, maybe it's the not capitalism. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the official thing had worked so poorly that people were open for change. And so when Deng did Shenzhen, it just went vertical. It really worked. And then with that political capital, he was able to open up more special economic zones, like I think three or four more. And those were all just working. And then he just kind of did it for the Eastern Seaboard. And this became, you know, like a policy tool for China, the so-called SEZ, right? Special Economic Zone. Yeah. And that was exported across East Asia with some success, exported worldwide with less success. But the idea of having different rules for different areas and allowing people to kind of experiment with that, that's like is our version of like a minimum viable product. You know, that's our version of start small and scale up, right? Like localize the spend. In his case, it wasn't the expenditure of capital capital, but of political capital, you know, um, because he had to like basically hold people off from trying to shoot him for reversing 30 years of gains in the great proletarian cultural revolution, blah, blah, blah. So, so apply that back to what we're talking about with like Twitter and the tech companies today. How do you, yes. how do they go from where centralized to decentralized? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the key thing was that Deng realized that if you allowed that farmer to take a cut of their grain, they would produce more. Duh. Yeah. Right. It's, and yeah. it's the most obvious thing in the world. And so that led to this gigantic multi-trillion dollar Chinese economy. If we allow people to take a cut of their digital labor, okay, if they yep. can actually monetize for every tweet, for every post, for every action that they take online on these platforms where they currently own nothing, it will have a similar increase. That's yep. why this is such a big deal. Like literally we're talking the economy of China level scale unlock in terms of digital property rights. When your property isn't just, when your teeth aren't owned by the state, right? When... Yep. When you have true property rights and, and it's seizure resistant, digital property rights, when your following is yours, when you can monetize them, when you can take your homestead and then move it somewhere else, when all of that is cryptographic as opposed to essentially just a row in a table server side, you will see an unlock that is comparable to literally the economy of China in so, crypto. So I, I agree with that. I believe that. But right now what we have is so oh, they did it they're all together after after that yeah. long digression? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. well, except I, I do want to come back to like how the transformation from centralized to decentralized happens for the existing incumbents. But Good. my observation is like, we've gone from what's effectively no property rights, which was like, Twitter is like no property rights. You and I produce all the content and we get none of the revenue, right? Mm -hmm. YouTube is somewhere to like, like synthetic property rights, right? Like I own my channel and I get some revenue. It's probably not really the... You know, YouTube is rent seeking a heavy part of that right. in terms of like how much percentage of the revenue they take, but they do pay out, you know, $10 billion a year or something to creators. And so is the synthetic property right like good enough? Like I'm working on building my YouTube because, you know, well, really for me, it's not like the direct ad revenue or something. It's the reputational part, but like 
other people are working on building their YouTube channels because you know they they uh, can make money off of it. It can be it's a viable. So, now. so I'd say I'd say no, yeah. and let me give some reasons. First is yeah. there's an obvious point, which is uh, you don't have an omni follower list, right? The YouTube follow, yeah. the Twitter follow, you have to rebuild that from scratch everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, that alone is a massive, massive hit where it's basically like starting a new company, right? Like yeah. you and Gary had to sort of rebuild that from scratch. You couldn't just have your Twitter followers just, you know, go over there, right? In a decentralized social network, that wouldn't be the case. Every decentralized social network can be best thought of as a new external database. Yeah. Okay, I'll come back to that point. So number one right there is... The reason you don't use as many social networks and don't deploy content on as many of them is the difficulty of starting and building up a full new profile on a new system. It's it's a significant yes. cost. It's it's equivalent to like going into a new country or something like that. And the internet made it easier to go into new countries. Blockchain and decentralized social networks make it easier to go into new platforms, number one, right? So you have that synergistic effect, which is a big deal. Um, that also allows for collaborations. It allows for getting the feet wet. It allows for seeing whether you might, you know, maybe you'd be big on Pinterest, Justin. I don't know. Um, you know, like big on YouTube. Yeah. So that's one. The number two is, yes, it is true that you get like a dribble of revenue from from Google, but you have zero ability to optimize that. You know, you have like every single aspect of that. You you are getting the most generic one size fits all thing. And you're an entrepreneur. You know that the tiniest delta in terms of clicks, you know, in, in terms of like button hues and stuff like that can sometimes massively influence checkout. You have no ability to control that monetization process because it's all being done through Google. Now, of course, yes, you don't have to do any work. You just you know, put up a video and Google takes care of all the rest of it. But should you want to do the work, you cannot, you know, or not not yep. very easily, right? Third is you're, you're vulnerable still to Google deplatforming or adpocalypse yep. and all that type of stuff, which is a big deal, you know, and very arbitrary. And so you're planning, you have enormous supply chain risk. So if you're evaluating this in an S1 or, or, a, or an SEC filing, you know, the equivalent, and you're enumerating your business risks, you'd say, well, this guy can just choke point us out and completely destroy our entire revenue stream at any given point, right? That's a very big yeah, risk, you know? You're basically playing the reverse lottery every day where like once in a while you just get smacked in the face by the platform you're on. Yes. And the reason that's actually, and you're probably aware of this, but more, more important than people think is, yeah, there's some genres like, I don't know, you're doing woodworking videos or something like that. You may not run into this issue. Okay. But pretty much everybody in, on YouTube realizes that the more they push the envelope, the more views they get. Right. And so essentially, you know, actually Zuck had this really great graph where, um, he showed that there's an incentive for going right up to the line of suspension in terms of engagement. It increases like, you know, if not exponentially, it certainly increases sharply right up to the line at which then people get banned and then engagement drops off a cliff. Yeah. Okay. So it's an incentive for brinksmanship where basically your engagement goes higher and higher as you push the envelope until the very edge where you get banned. Okay. Yeah. Now their solution was actually, which is interesting, use AI to detect that brinksmanship and actually start giving a, a, a gradual soft base, right? To like give you an incentive to go back. Exactly. That's right. And that's fascinating. It's a very interesting way of thinking about and articulating the trade-off there. But still, there's two issues with that. One is someone else is setting that line, you know, and number two is maybe you disagree with what their AI soft banning or whatever is doing because it's again going to be one size fits all and it might not fit your use case. So, I mean, in general, it's something where you will always be restricted to 
a certain kind and scale. I mean, there's obviously some people who've yeah. made quite a lot of money as YouTube creators, but you simply won't be able to build a very large operation if you don't have full control. Or, or rather, you can build a large operation people have, but the scale of the operation is limited to a much greater extent than people think because they don't have that full control. And I agree with you. Effectively, with the state of the digital economy as a creator, I can see this, but it applies to having a Shopify or like a like an Etsy shop or you know, any of these other things like the state is you kind of live at the behest of this, of the state. And, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and it's not a good place that like nobody likes that. Right. But so synthetic property rights are not as good as real property rights. So I agree with that. But how do you convince the centralized platforms to de- kind of at the start of the conversation we're talking about how the centralized platforms become decentralized because that requires them to give up their power to be a rent seeker and a gatekeeper. Yes. And thank God for crypto because it's less power, more money. Basically, decentralization has always been arguably the ethically good thing to do, right? But it's had very high complexity and it has, you know, it basically was just like you get a hole in the head and it's complicated and people won't do it because it's hard. It's just harder than building a centralized thing until blockchain assets, right? And suddenly that technical complexity, it was more than offset by the money that you make, right? And yeah. the technical complexity now also has that ethical component alongside. And this is, let me see if I can articulate this well, because it's a very important synergy that's here. You know, it, it's sort of find your market to find your voice, okay? If either of those was not there by itself, okay, if it just made more money, but it required like really exploiting customers or something like that. I mean, th- there's lots of things you can do that make more money that will basically harm your customer base in the, in the short or medium or long term that people do not do. So if it was just that, then people might not do it. If it was just giving out, you know, a better API that anybody can control and property rights and all this type of stuff, again, people might not do that because, hey, you know, you got to eat. That's why Twitter closed up its API. That's why it went from a protocol to a platform. That's why all the platforms have choked off their APIs because if they gave full API support and everybody could make their own Twitter or Facebook, then they would no longer be the monopoly provider of ads and, you know, their revenue would just plummet. Okay, so if you have only the ethics without the money, that also is a failure mode. But when you have both, when the thing that makes you 10x as much money is also something which is 10x better for the world and 10x more desired by your users, that is the kind of lever that can transform even a a trillion dollar corporation. Yeah, so something like Twitter is like, okay, we're going to fully decentralize ourselves because we're going to create a token that we're going to own most of and that's you know, it's economically viable, or like, even though we're giving up control, we're, we're getting a lot economically. I mean, to be clear, do. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. So, so basically it is synergistic because it combines all of them, right? It is much more money. And I don't think people realize how much more yet, as I mentioned, like, I think that China analogy is a useful way of thinking about it, right? The billions of people who are on social networks right now have zero digital property rights. It's the scale of China. Right. Yeah. And so the introduction of digital property rights will lead to an unlock on the scale of the Chinese economy. Like that's how the crypto economy will be like, it's like two trillion today. It'll probably be 10 trillion at least by 2030, maybe a hundred trillion. Um, and, and the reason I say that is just like all properties becoming digital. Okay. But coming back to your thing. So how does this reform happen? Well, the good thing is it doesn't have to happen. That's why it's possible. What I mean by that is, Microsoft was reformed by Google and Apple and Facebook and so on being on the outside using Linux, using the iPhone, right? 
Like all of these things were taboo within Microsoft for a long time under Bomber. And eventually Satya won the argument after a decade of patience. And now they've bought GitHub and they've embraced open source. And basically, you know, they managed to Satya's enormous credit to turn this thing around, which I would have thought was impossible given how set in their ways people were, right? But it was the external proof you know, if if the only thing that happened was within Microsoft's building that there was an argument here, you know, and there was no external disruptor, you wouldn't have had the ammo to win the argument to say open source is the right thing to do. Okay. But because open source both made money, billions of dollars, and it was ethically right, and because people could execute on it outside of Microsoft's building, then you got GitHub, right? And yeah. GitHub eventually helped reform Microsoft. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I get what you're saying, but that's... So it doesn't matter if Twitter reforms because there will be the decentralized platform that, you know, exactly. It's, that's, that also has that interaction effect because they don't have control over this because the disruptors are arising. That will force their, I mean, that's why Jack is looking to Blue Sky. That's why Jack is looking at Bitcoin. I mean, Twitter and Facebook actually, because they're still founder run, I actually think will, and, and they've embraced crypto. I think they're the ones I'm the most bullish on of the big tech companies for this decade. I know it sounds like a little bit of an out of the money bet, but basically, you know, Google or a- Apple, obviously, look, these are great companies. I'm not saying they're going to zero or anything tomorrow, right? But Google might be the weakest of them in terms of, you know, really not looking at decentralization or anything like that. At least Apple has the privacy aspect, you know, and I guess Microsoft and Amazon, you know, they've, they're doing their own things. Amazon has groceries and shipping and the physical stuff, which is distinct from its cloud business. Google, though, as a pure digital company, has not really embraced decentralization at all and might be in some ways the most vulnerable to this over time. For example, you could imagine certainly decentralized crypto email. Um, I think that's going to become a bigger and bigger thing because people underestimate how important it is that everybody has public and private key pairs now. So the PKI, public key infrastructure problem, this is something that people have wanted to solve forever, which is how do you get people public and private keys? Uh, roughly speaking, it's like giving people um, the ability to generate secure envelopes, you know, where they can put a message in it, lock it, and then send it to somebody else uh, such that only the person who has that private key can can open it. So you give out like a bunch of envelopes, right? I put a message in, I lock it, and only you can unlock that. Nobody else can unlock it, okay? So the issue with this has been distributing those public and private keys, and especially with a private key, it has to have two criteria. Number one, it has to be uh, available at all times. And number two, it has to be secure at all times. Okay, so now secure at all times is an easy solution. Write the private key down, put it on in a lockbox and keep it somewhere really, really safe. So safe you forget about it, okay? <laughs> Available at all times, again, an easy solution, which is put it on a sticky and just tape it to your to your monitor, right? Or keep it on the internet at a website, right? But available and secure at all times is actually very expensive. That's like that's no. like literally a physical wallet, right? That's like your credit card. There's very few things that you keep available and secure at all times. That's like L2 cash, like space is very valuable space, okay? Yeah. And so if it's very valuable space, you need an incentive to keep that private key available and secure at all times, right? To consciously keep thinking about it. I don't want to lose this piece of paper. I don't want to lose this password, et cetera, right? Um, and that's where crypto came in. It gave a literal incentive. It also gave an incentive where if you lost that private key, there was a financial penalty. So now there's like a pile of money on top of that password. So you don't give it out. People actually learn not to do it. And the only way people can learn, which is a proximal rather than distal consequence, it is their money. Yeah. Okay. This in turn means that the public private key 
infrastructure problem is being solved because hundreds of millions of people are getting public-private key pairs, which means encrypted messaging, which means digital signatures, which means this entire insane crypto world will arise where every single post that's made on a decentralized social network has a digital signature. Every email you send has a digital signature. There's authentication that arises, A, because it's feasible, and B, because deepfakes and GPT-3 and so on will make it less and less trustworthy than email as actually coming from somebody else Yeah. Um, without the digital signature. So, okay, that's fascinating. And I feel like it enables a lot of like kind of downstream consequences and applications that we haven't really thought about. Um, I want to go back to talking about how to build a city and specifically the idea of crowd choice, uh, which I think yeah. is a, a fascinating idea. Can you explain what that is and then how do you, how you think it actually manifests itself now? Totally. Like it seems like all the tools through 2013, you know, everything that you thought would happen had come to play with, with regards to the Bay Area, including the ability to like now have remote work and, you know, the coronavirus, the kind of disbursement of the population. And so how do you, how do you think this happens? Tell us what crowd choice is first, actually. Great. So the short version is you have a group that basically puts in its preferences into a forum. So I want, you know, this policy on schooling and this policy on guns and this policy on X and Y and Z. Okay, you've got your preferences. And that set of preferences is a vector, you know, or really a table matrix that gets aggregated and treated as a search query across the jurisdictions of the world. All right. And you rank order every jurisdiction by how much it fits this preference vector. Okay. So Dubai, number one, Singapore, number two, Monaco, number three, whatever. Okay. You have this list. Um, maybe you want them to be Spanish speaking. Okay. Then Miami comes up near the top and so on and so forth. Okay. And once you've got that list, what you do is you take in your community of your thousand people that have filled out this, this form, you nominate a leader. And that leader is now empowered to go and negotiate on your behalf with the mayors of each of these locations. And, and they basically say, look, I can bring a thousand remote workers to your jurisdiction. They're making a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's a hundred million dollar windfall of annual revenue for your place. Okay. What are you going to give me? Maybe you can knock down, you know, this regulation, right? Maybe you can increase visa duration for these folks. Okay. Like it's a deal. It's a business deal. It's a, uh, it's business Moses where you're leading essentially a collective migration of these nomads. And you're negotiating on their behalf. Now, this can be made much more convincing if those thousand people do something on chain where they can signal that they have the financial resources credibly to the governor or mayor or whatever on the other side who's like, okay, I can see that in the block explorer. You really do have the money and it's ready to deploy. And it's in a multi-sig contract that you, the, the guy in the meeting with me, can actually flip a switch and show I can just twiddle it around. Okay. So you can show that $50 million a year or whatever is in the cloud or in on chain and it's actually there. It's tangible money. And there's ways with zero knowledge proof so you can prove only that that exists and nothing else. Now, of course, there needs to be an educational process on both sides where a mayor would have to understand that what this actually proves and what this signifies because, and that'll take five or 10 or 15 years. But if you think about it, people didn't know the arcana of Twitter 10 or 15 years ago, but now every senator and congressman, for better or worse, and probably worse, knows what retweets and ratios are, you know? Um, yeah. So so all the arcana of crypto stuff will become something that everybody knows in the same way you know what hard drive spaces and RAM is, right? Those were arcane computer science concepts once upon a time, but, you know, millions of people are now familiar with them, hundreds of millions. So, so essentially the concept of crowd choice is you have a group of people that is basically doing 
digital selection rather than physical election. Okay. Yeah. And more fundamentally, this relates to a concept I have of like the scanner. All right. So you can go from a piece of paper to a scanner to a purely digital text file that has no physical antecedent. Right. You can go from, you know, a, a movie theater to Netflix to a computer generated video that didn't start offline. Okay. That wasn't filmed yeah. with human beings. Okay. You can go from a piece of paper, you know, or rather a physical, uh, bit of cash, right? Paper currency to a bank balance online to cryptocurrency, which is inherently digital, right? And this is a useful progression to do for many different areas because you can see that the inherently digital often doesn't exist. Much of the last 20 years has been taking the offline version and basically just uploading it to the cloud, right? Often without fundamentally changing the form. You know, search engines and social networks are fundamentally digital things that really couldn't exist offline. But there's other things where the crypto equivalent, the digital native equivalent is yet to exist. Like what is a crypto equivalent of a diploma, for example? Crypto art is just happening. You know, what does crypto login look like? Fundamentally digital login and crypto identity. All those kinds of things are going to come. Okay. So in the same way, what does crypto election look like? The naive way of thinking about it is the scanner, right? Oh, we, we go and we, we vote with paper ballots. Oh, let's just vote with voting machines. Okay. That's just taking the offline process and putting it online, just forklifting it online. Fine. You can do that. Then you start thinking, what does digitally native voting look like? And one of the first things is you realize, hey, well, you can vote not just with your ballot, but your feet and your wallet. Yeah. Okay. And you can include social features so that people can vote as a group. So blocked votes are actually a thing. And geography matters less because all of the structures, the entire way the paper voting system was built, assumed that geography mattered a great deal. You know, that people were split off in this way. That Because essentially you couldn't right. come down to Washington, D.C. and go and vote on everything. That was extremely time-consuming. You know, you couldn't have a say on every matter, not simply because of lack of knowledge, but lack of time. Um, in theory... You know, I'm not saying this is good, but in theory, you could have a plebiscite on literally every issue now because everybody's got a mobile phone, right? And so the time and the and the cost and the distance constraints are less, right? So a lot of these things were built for this pre-internet world. And what would the post-internet world, the truly digital equivalent look like? So it is uh, first vote with ballot to have everybody put in their preferences within the community, then vote with feet and wallet to find the jurisdiction that best matches them and use social to coordinate, use crypto to crowdfund and use mobile to execute the migration. Okay. And use idea. Yeah. So it's so, it's fascinating because the idea that, you know, it's so ingrained in us that the idea is like, you should vote the jurisdiction that you live in. And like the voting is intrinsically tied to like rule of law that you follow is intrinsically tied to like the locality, you know, municipality that you live in right. or state or, or country. When most things are in the cloud, that doesn't necessarily have to work that way. Basically, one of the fundamental concepts here is the transition from the great circle or geographic distance to the geodesic distance, which is, you know, you can talk about the distance between two points on the surface of the earth, you know, the great circle distance. Okay. Yeah. Like the arc length, you know, of like a plane taking off from here and landing up there, you know, or you can talk about the geodesic distance, which is the distance between two nodes in a social network. Yeah. Okay. And the former, or some version of the former, it, it wasn't truly the great circle distance that 
dominated was a constrained great circle distance where, you know, you had to make your way across isthmuses and canals and, and so on. You couldn't just go Africa to South America very easily. You had to go all the way through the Bering Strait and all the way down. That was actually a pretty, pretty long journey, you know, for a long time. But, but basically the geographic distance, at least in the small, you know, not, not in the very large, but in the small was something where you could assume, and this is for the last 400 years or so, you assume that people who lived near each other shared common values. And because of that, you had a nation state that was like a contiguous physical thing where the laws that were enforced were enforced on a geographical basis, like you have physical, these physical borders, because people within that geographical basis all had the same ideas. Right. So that was this implicit overlap that occurred. Uh, yeah, nowadays, that's now the internet has abolished that, right? Because we're able to find our tribe online of all the people who are, you know, maybe share values with us, which it, we would never exactly. have been able to access before. And so like, your Twitch is like that, right? Where it's like there was never any media network or whatever that could survive on like broadcasting people playing video games because like the population was dispersed and it took the internet to like bring them all together to create this, what turned out to be like a really big site right and so i get that idea but like my question is how does that interact with the you know that that comes into conflict with like the existing power structures right which are all based on this idea of like contiguous physical proximity and like deciding everything about you know the rule of law that you follow so like how do you think those two things interact so it's going to be basically the story of the century the state versus network and um, like this is going to be as big a thing as capitalism versus communism last century. Like centralization versus decentralization is going to be the huge tug of war for the next at least few decades, maybe maybe the whole thing. Okay. And basically every possible outcome of this atom smasher, I think you're going to see. You're going to see fully decentralized entities that live purely digitally and that are purely VR, right? You're going to see projections of those into the physical world, what I call network states, where they have a bunch of individual cul-de-sacs and ranches and apartment complexes and so on of a million people that consider themselves part of a nation online, which has a footprint collectively of a traditional nation, but it's distributed across a hundred legacy countries. <laughs> Okay, it's a funny term, but a legacy country, right? So you've got a piece in what is today Mexico and a piece in, you know, Texas and a piece in Poland and a piece in Japan and a piece in Australia and South Africa, whatever, but they're all networked together. You know, it's like 10 acres here, 50 acres there. So that's something that's not purely virtual. It has a physical projection. Okay. Then you have existing cities or states or regions that have networkified themselves, like what is happening at Miami, what's happening in Wyoming to some extent, what's happening in Estonia or Dubai or Singapore, where these, uh, you know, or Israel actually, where these places have actually embraced technology in many ways and sort of fused themselves with the network and become attractive places for these kinds of migrants, you know. And then, you know, jurisdictions are just going to lose people like San Francisco and so on, which are just incompetently managed 28 days later, Gotham City like <laughs> environments in SF's case, or simply hapless jurisdictions that just don't have any, anything appealing to, to give folks. And so they, they lose their citizens. And then finally, you have maybe the worst, which are the declining jurisdictions with guns and a, a mean streak that will try to do something to stop the exodus. Um, and so I think you have that full spectrum. They're going to see everything. I, I, you know, when I first heard you articulate this theory, I was kind of skeptical, 
but now I see it. I, I actually, I think, you know, there are, you know, like Y Combinator might be an example of like people who like share a lot of values that are part of a network where there's a very strong economic affiliation and kind of ideological affiliation of mm-hmm. people who live all over the world now, you know, but they have like this yes. very high affinity to this one organizational, it's not even the organization itself, but like the identity of it. Um, it's interesting because I think, you know, I had this tweet, which is, you know, just let me preface this with, obviously I respect Paul Graham and I respect YC and everything that you guys have built and, and so on. It, you know, I, I'm your contemporary, but I never took the path of actually going through YC. I mean, it was too independent or crazy or whatever for that, right? Um, like the kind of founder who's such a non-joiner that I don't join or something like that. Who knows, right? Yeah. Um, I certainly have a lot of friends who, who did it. and But I do think that you could say VC, YC, BTC, right? Yeah. Which is, what I mean by that is that the uh, the common story, the great thing about YC is there's a degree, you know, I wouldn't call it fully aligned with True North, but it's way better than, than what preceded it, which is, you know, at Airbnb or Dropbox or Coinbase and so on, there's sort of a common base of writing or Stripe, you know, Paul Graham's essays and you know, like the YC demo day. And so it's where people have like a shared experience and a shared kind of common thing, right? Now, as stories go, it's insofar as it's got a moral teaching, it's like, you know, make something people want, which is fine, okay? But I think the next level of that is crypto. And what I mean by that is whether you work at Binance or again, Coinbase or Kraken or something, many of those are not YC companies, but what they have in common is they know the story of Satoshi. And unlike YC, this story has both heroes and villains, right? Everybody in crypto, whether they agree with it or not, but most of them agree with it, thinks banks bad, decentralization good, right? Fiat bad, crypto good. Inflation bad, deflation good, right? They have, you know, boo this, yay that, okay? Remember we talked earlier about like the the software that had been installed in people's heads at that impressionable stage, Right. That is the thing. What crypto has done is it's put a story in people's heads of a different set of yays and boos. Okay. One that is going to be competing as a memeplex with wokeness worldwide. Um, and both of them allow compete nationalism. So the thing is that both wokeness and crypto are fundamentally internationalist ideologies. You know, you can, you can, and people do, even though wokeness is highly American. And in fact, that's a really a critical thing. It kind of, it, it sprung out of America. You can see the loan words everywhere. Uh, you know, when people are using woke language in, in Denmark or something, it's all loan words from English. This is, it's like a template. You can drop into any country and the same conflict levers exist. And so conflict is attention and attention is power. And so any, you know, young, ambitious, amoral person can like sandpaper, start the same kinds of fights in Poland or Brazil or Japan as they do in the U.S. on many of the same kinds of issues. It's just like a guaranteed kind of conflict that happens everywhere. It just polarizes people in very much the same way. And what that does, it, it makes them feel like they're fighting the power, they're they're gaining momentum, and they get funds from you know international orgs and, and so on and so forth. And essentially, the global story is that they're all doing this for human rights. Uh, and you know, maybe that's that's part of it, or maybe it's uh, attention seeking. Maybe it's actually not that good. Maybe some of what they're doing is self serving. Uh, maybe it's some combination of the above. Okay, but but they have a narrative uh, which which gives them both the feeling that they're doing the right thing and unlocks lots of money from overseas, right? By contrast, nationalism can't really resist this, not forever. And the reason is that the 
you know, Hungarian nationalism, Brazilian nationalism, Israeli nationalism, this nationalism, that nationalism is fundamentally particularist. It can't really form alliances across borders very easily, right? The story of Brazilian nationalism may be appealing to Brazilians, but not to Indians and vice versa, right? And so there's a limit of, you know, with MAGA, for example, like what Trump, you know, proposed, like that's just not as appealing to non-Americans. You can't build an international alliance if you're, you know, chest thumping and saying, you know, my country is the greatest, right? And that applies in reverse, right? Who in the U.S. wants to like raise the French flag and be like French nationalism? Yay. You know, I don't know, maybe some people, but it's not, it's not globally appealing in the same way, right? So nationalism is particularist, which means it eventually gets encircled by any internationalist ideology that can just usually just keep coming. It's got more resources, you know, it's, it's, it's global in a sense. So against that, um, and this, by the way, is why communism was so successful in the 20th century. It was an internationalist ideology. Very similarly, they could find young and ambitious people in different places, you know, the Pol Pots, the Maos, the, you know, the, the Stalins, et cetera. And they were essentially funded by this global movement of labor organizers and so on who believed what they were doing was good, but it was also a way to gain power, right? And they leveled up these guys. Uh, once they actually flipped the, the USSR, the Soviet Union itself was funding these guys, advising them, acting as a sort of venture communist, okay, and investing these folks. You know, like it, you may see, you know, old, you know, articles which talk about Soviet troops, Soviet advisors, right? Soviet advisors yeah. are on the ground in Cuba, right? Soviet advisors on the ground here, Soviet advisors here. They kind of teach them how to do the secret police stuff and how to, you know, squelch dissent and do propaganda and all this type of stuff, right? Um, and it was it was a movement, right? It was an international movement. Now, against that, fortunately, capitalism got its boots on by the mid-century and fought the thing off. Okay, capitalism was also an international movement where it was it was something that wasn't particularist, right? You could start a business anywhere. You know, you could offer a product anywhere. Now, it was identified with the U.S. just like communism was identified with Russia, but it was a global thing, and certainly people who took to it did well, and eventually, capitalism won. Now, if communism was the redistribution of wealth, wokeness is the redistribution of status. Okay. And if communism yeah. was centralized, then wokeness is decentralized. So with communism, there was a just a redistribution of wealth versus redistribution of status. So with communism, there was a union mob, right? Uh, or a union. And what they would do is they'd hold a strike. And that strike would be intended to redistribute money from the boss to the workers. And this seemed to work, right? It seemed to like, boom, you've got concessions, boom, you know, you've got like new working hours. And that gave a tangible benefit. And people were like, whoa, this is working, right? But the second order effect was, was now suddenly they had a union boss and they had union dues and their company slowed down and it was less competitive. And, uh, you know, now it became something where there was a short-term gain, but often a long-term loss, you know. And uh, similarly, what wokeness is, it's a reduction of status and the setting is not the factory floor, but it's a social network where you have a group of people now, not the, the union, but the like internet mob that descends on a thread and boom, they'll throw some epithet at you and all the likes get just redistributed to them. Yeah. Right. All, all the RTs, ha, man, they've ratioed you, they owned you, et cetera. And this person now rises in status, which is valuable for human beings. And maybe they get a job or something from the attention or whatever. They might monetize it as well, right? Money and status are some related that way. And they feel morally, you know, justified in doing this. And they got this tangible short-term benefit from using woke language on their enemies. Um, what they did though in the medium term is they debited the social trust pool, right? 
they essentially also open themselves up to a blindside attack where somebody can cancel them for insufficient wokeness on one of 15 other dimensions because nobody has woke superiority on every axis, right? There is an, an oppressor on some axis, okay? So they actually open themselves up to long-term downside, even though they got this short-term upside by sort of taking from the, the commons of trust. And so when you think about this, it's like, okay, it's like a an internet version of communism, except it's more focused on the restriction of status than on money. Now, no. most people just don't know anything about the history of communism. That's why, like, when I talked about it earlier, just the concept that you would be shot for founding a business, it was, it, it, I mean, on the one hand, that adds up because people are like, oh, yeah, well, communism was the abolition of p- private property and capitalism. On the other hand, people are always surprised that it was that extreme. They think it was just like bureaucracy or something like that. No, it was like mass murder. You know, it's like people losing their freaking minds about this stuff for decades across the world. Okay. So it's very, 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 very bad. And, you know, one one thing that made it worse was that people poo-pooed how bad it is. Ho, ha, ha. You're talking about communism. Ah, pull the other leg. What? It's not a big deal. We've been sort of taught to have that reaction to not really take the thing that seriously. It's sort of like a knocking down the immune system. So... That's my point. Point is that crypto is, unlike wokeism, unlike nationalism, it is also internationalist. And in a sense, it's actually the extension of venture capital. By the way, interesting point and a, and a highly relevant one is that many venture capitalists are former communists or rather in their family. Like Ben Horowitz wrote about this at the beginning of his book, From Communist to Venture Capitalist. And the reason is because, and same with like, uh, for example, Joshua Browder of, of Do Not Pay, right? His, yeah. like, I think his grandfather was like the head of the American Communist Party. Okay. So, the reason for this is that lots and lots of intellectuals in the early 20th century were attracted to communism because they were like, wow, we can reshape the world. You know, it was, it was essentially some of the same kind of thing that powers the, the, mm-hmm. the startup ethos. It just descent into a very bad direction. You know, a lot of people who went to the Soviet Union thought they were building communism. You know, and they thought of it like building a startup or something like that. They weren't limited by budgets. So the desperate startup founder, they would just execute people or whatever. Okay. Um, but they had this sort of utopian drive to overthrow the establishment. They just didn't channel it in the right way. Um, they didn't have the, in particular, basically, one way of thinking about it is low capital costs didn't exist. Um, and there's actually a great book uh, by Charles Nordhoff called, uh, I think, Communistic Societies of the United States. This is an old book, but it's worth reading. It's 1875. The reason it's worth reading is in the U.S., one of the most important safety valves at the time was the frontier. And the fact that anybody who thought they could accomplish something who was ambitious could just go out to the frontier and get a piece of land, right? And Nordhoff recognized that uh, you can read in the preface of the book, um, he recognized that the existence of that safety valve was a very important practical as well as rhetorical thing where if somebody was complaining too much about their job or something, you'd say like, the West is out here, dog. Go out there, get started. It's right there for you, right? All the explorers could just head out there. You could just head out there, right? Yeah. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence. In fact, he actually kind of predicts this in the book, okay? But I don't think it's a coincidence that when 1890 1890 happened, when the frontier officially closed, that basically closed off a very important avenue for ambitious people. And so that's when the age of strikes and unions and communism and so on began because it became zero sum, right? In order to win, 
you had to go and take over an existing institution, do a revolution. You know, the concentrations of capital were such a point that the ambitious young guy couldn't just go and start a company. Centralization was to such a point that they had to figure out some ideology that would let them capture that centralized organization. Okay. And now where that changed was in 1991 when the internet happened, or I shouldn't say the internet happened, the commercial internet happened. NSF repealed their so-called acceptable use policy, which most people don't know had banned commercial traffic on the internet for the period prior to 1991. So in the same set of years where India reformed and the Soviet Union collapsed, the NSF repealed its AUP, acceptable use policy, and mm-hmm. began the commercial internet, which started going vertical. And now, 101 years after the frontier closed, the digital frontier reopened. And so now you could go and get a homestead, right? You could get a digital homestead. You could build and nobody could stop you. There was an outlet for that ambitious young person to go and do something because, you know, whatever idealistic vision you have, you could try and implement it with your company, right? You want a holacracy, you want a flat organization, you wanted this, you wanted that, whatever crazy idea you have on how things should be managed, as long as you convince people to just go for it, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, right? And now, of course, there's a whole culture of startup founders that have, you know, figured out best practices, but you can ignore all of them should you see fit. You know, Satoshi certainly did. He didn't raise any VC for a trillion dollar thing that he built in his garage, basically, you know, so to speak. Um, And... This was similar to kind of the influencers who built those communistic societies of the United States in the 1800s, right? You know, today we call them influencers. You know, back in the day, you might call them community leaders or something, but they weren't simply charismatic individuals. They were community leaders, right? They built a community around them and they literally formed physical territory. And some of those things became very profitable. Now, in many ways, you know, actually, Paul Graham has actually also observed this in a, from a different direction. He had seen this a while back called the fragmentation. And I had a thing on this as well, um, which basically observes that 1950 is like peak centralization. And as you go backwards and forwards in time, things get more decentralized. So in 1950, you have one telephone company and two superpowers and three television stations. Yeah. You have AT&T and you have the US and the USSR and you have ABC, CBS, NBC. Okay. And so it's like super, super, super centralized. There's just a few choke points and everything. Very little choice. Everything's homogenized. You know, everybody is watching the same show on television. It's all just flattened out and smoothed out. And it's just like the state above, right? And the US state was like the best version of this, but essentially all kinds of variety was just kind of crushed, right? And uh, you go backwards and forwards and things start getting more decentralized. So we know the forward story because you get, um, you know, cable television, then you get the internet and you get blogs and you get social media and you get cryptocurrency and so on. But go backwards in time. And one of the really fascinating things is it's as if we're like rewinding the tape with certain events from the past now appearing in the future, but out of order. Okay. So we have the street fights between socialists and nationalists of like thirties. We have the pandemic influenza, right? We have the robber baron equivalents, you know, the entrepreneurs and the founders. We have the wild west, which is like, you know, the internet. We have potentially the hyperinflation of Weimar Germany, you know, that's lurking, you know, with, with what, what is coming. Um, and then you go further back in time and you have these communistic societies which uh, the robber barons are actually further back than Weimar, of course. It's like 50, 60 years. So I'm saying it's happening a little bit out of order. But you go to like the mid-1800s and you have these communist societies that are founded by influencers and you go even further back and you have pseudonymous philosophers that founded a state with the Federalist Papers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, 
one theory on all this, which is interesting, and I can go much, much more detail. That's just kind of a sketch of, you know, the concept, but our future is our past. Okay. Actually, Chesky noticed this also with Airbnb. He had some article a while back where he talked about like lodging houses in, I think, 1900, right? And he was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. People used to do something like Airbnb around the turn of the last century. Yeah. Okay. And like have strangers in their house. Yeah, exactly. Why, why do you see that similarity? Well, you know, before you had mass media and mass production and modern telecommunications, um, institutions and organizations were necessarily decentralized because they couldn't communicate that fast, right? The, the pipes between them, you know, between Oregon and Miami or whatever, yeah. you know, Florida, they just weren't that thick, you know, there's, there's mail, you know, going back and forth. Don't get me wrong, but it was something that was necessarily decentralized because it wasn't a high bandwidth connection, right? It wasn't right. low latency. It wasn't real time. Certainly wasn't remote work, right? So necessarily there was decentralization. And as those connections got better with the telegraph, with especially television, with newspapers and having them being distributed all over the place, then it got like aligned like this, right? Constraint. You, you had this phenomenon was playing around all over the world. You had German unification with Bismarck. Uh, you had, of course, the, the formation of this gigantic Soviet Union. You had the formation of this Geiger state of China, the formation of, you know, the USA. Basically everything just clumped together into these gigantic things and then just slugged it out in, in World War II. And, uh, you know, the Chinese state, you know, it was after this 1949, but, but the concept is, you know, the Geiger state set that were slugging it out. That was the 20th century. So the, the point is that, um, it may turn out that every ideology has always been around for all time. What has yeah. changed is what is technologically feasible. So the ideologies that were favored in the 20th century were those that centralization, centralized technologies favored, mass media and mass production. And the ideologies that are favored today, as they were in the past, are decentralized things that essentially assume a different status quo, or a different balance yeah. of technology, balance of power. So that's a different view of the world because people often think ideas dominate and, you know, ideas script people and so on and so forth. But maybe every idea has always been out there. We've had concepts around democracy or libertarianism or whatever for millennia, but what shifts is the technological balance of power. No, I love that. I, I, that's such an interesting way to think about it. I love this. And I feel like I've actually gotten a lot to think about like myself, like I've, I've been thinking a lot about like what's like the future of decentralized apps and particularly like around the social side. So I think, uh, you know, I had a tweet on this, which was 2000s tech companies, 2010s crypto protocols, 2020s startup cities, 2030s network states. That's sort of like my rough forecast. You know, yeah. and it's kind of funny because like crypto for many people, it's just coming on their radar. So I'm talking about what comes after crypto and what comes after, after that thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think what comes after crypto, the, the cryptocurrencies of the 2020s are startup cities and then of the 2030s are network states. And, uh, you know, once you kind of put all that together, you have like a, a 20 year thesis for investment, for building, for migration, for your personal life for your community life you know the the network state thesis you know uh, you can you can read in more detail at 79.com how to start a new country you know so that's there's a post that's up there um but in terms of specific practical things about how to decentralize your community you can do it the binance way where they essentially show that it's possible to do a coin, not as this sort of rocket ship approach of a Bitcoin or Ethereum where everything basically had to work and then lift off, you know, but rather the iterative approach of a startup where they issued BNB, which was an ERC-20, and they just 
kept adding value to it and then eventually turned it into its own chain. And now it's like the number three chain. Yeah. Okay. And that's a good approach as well, which you could do where, you know, you have some site and you issue Justin coin or, or whatever. Right. And, you know, BitClout will let you do this. There's other things that will let you do social tokens, but you issue that coin and voila, you've got a community that values it. Um, and you can add features to it over time. Right. Initially, actually, the value of it may be speculation that it will have value. Haha. <laughs> you know, um, and, and that's actually like the super meta kind of thing where you're like, this went way bigger than I thought. OK. And then you do something with it. And the thing about it is, what can you do with the coin? Well, as I said, it gives you private keys so you can get encrypted messaging. You can do transactions. You can do smart contracts. Um, you can have apps that have balances. You can host files. You can do actually quite a few things. It's kind of like, what can you do with the internet that you couldn't do with desktop software? Well, you do collaboration, right? You do synchronization, you do software updates, uh, you have open source, you have blah, you have this, you have that, right? So the primitives that a crypto address gives you with a user are comparable to the primitives that mobile or the internet gave you. You know, the mobile gave you a camera, right? Gave you GPS. So crypto gives you balances, gives you encryption, it gives you all this stuff. So that I think would be one way to start is you should token for your new thing. Oh, by the way, there's an even simpler way of doing it, which is you have a centralized database and you just have karma, like Reddit style or, or Hacker News style or Stack Overflow style and just signal to people, okay, look, we're just going to have a feed of who has what karma. Okay, we're just going to like publish that. Maybe we'll... We'll hash that or something like that. And eventually we're going to snapshot this and move it on chain. Yep. Right. That it's also totally legitimate. You just take a centralized database, snapshot it and put it into a token. Then you have the token that's running on Ethereum or something like that. And eventually pause and snapshot that and move it to its own chain. Yep. So you have the full continuum of how you can build this stuff. I love it. This is an amazing conversation. Thanks for coming. Cool. All right. Thank you guys. It's good to see you. Thank you. All right, guys, that was the conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you like this episode, drop us a rating and comment on iTunes, and you can check out all my other content at justincon.com. I will see you all next week.